One Week Season. season fam. Welcome to the week 14 edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I am JM to win. Throw this baby on 1.5x speed. Let's hang out for the next 45 minutes to an hour. Let's get started with this very unique week 14 slate. I have a feeling that This podcast for some of you will be one of the more valuable pieces of prep slash research for this particular week. And the reason I say that is because obviously for some of you that already is the case. And what I mean by that is maybe for one of you, the NFL edge is the most important thing you use. Maybe for one of you, the player grid or the scroll as a whole or the Oracle, if you're an inner circle or Xanamir and Hilo Saturday pod, if you're an inner circle. And for others of you, the angles pod each week is sort of what you find to be the most valuable piece for your week. But this week, I think that some of you for whom the angles pod is not typically the most valuable piece, you'll find it to be more valuable this week. And the reason I say that is because it's just such a unique week. And with it being such a unique week, some of the typical approaches you take, some of the typical tools that you use, obviously uh, lumping in the NFL edge and the scroll as tools, some of the tools that you use might not have the same power or utility that they typically have, but some of the other tools available to you, some of the other angles available to you can have more power than they typically have for you. Because in my mind, now I could be totally wrong, right? This is sort of what DFS is about, is we talk about, or if we're talking about it correctly, we talk about macro structures and we talk about if we could play out this slate a hundred times, what would be most most profitable. And by approaching DFS that way, we're able to keep our our mind more level, obviously, but also we're able to make much better decisions over time. So I could talk about this week's slate and we could get to Sunday and find that everything that I'm talking about in the small sample size of one week ends up not happening. And what we'll see instead is exactly what everybody expects to happen happening on this slate. But if we played out this slate a hundred times, what I'm going to talk about here would be positioning us to be much more profitable than most of the paths we could take this week to trying to say, okay, here's what's going to happen in this game. And so here's how I'll build around this game. And here's what's going to happen in this game. And so I'll avoid these players in this game and so on and so forth. All of that to say, or in other words, to say this differently, this is a week in which trying to out predict the field is probably a fool's errand. This is a week in which being part of the field and trying to predict exactly what is going to happen is likeliest to be a fool's errand. So going back to what I was saying before, 
maybe we get to the end of Sunday and it actually turns out that everything played out exactly the way that the field was expecting, exactly the way that ownership was saying that things would play out. But we can look at this slate, kind of take a step back and look at it from afar, look at it objectively, compare it to other slates, not just other slates this season, but other slates in other seasons, and be able to pretty comfortably say that this slate is full of unpredictability to a higher degree than the typical DFS slate. There are some reasons for that. The down the the lower scoring across the NFL this year, the sort of defensive hacks that some of these teams have found to limit the explosiveness of some of these explosive offenses, the injuries that teams are dealing with, the ways that the matchups set up this week, where we have some sort of blowout setups, but on lower total games. And then the closer spreads are on the higher total games, but it's not teams that really project to have explosive games. So we'll take this in two parts. We'll take the bottom games. I sort of teased this earlier in the week. I don't actually remember where it was, but I made a note to myself to talk about it in the Angles podcast because I'd said earlier in the week that I would. And that was the low total games and the nuances involved in the where, where I said that we would typically avoid uh, these lower total games if they were on a, uh, if they were on a slate with eleven games, but only two or three games had these super low totals, as opposed to this week where seven games have an over under of forty four or below. And typically, we would avoid those games, and there are nuances to that. So we'll start there with sort of the nuances in this discussion because this week we do have seven games out of eleven with an over under of forty four or below, and that kind of forces us to assess these games as part of this slate. And think about these games differently than we typically would. So a couple things to keep in mind. Not all low total games are created equal. We will be looking, obviously, at one of these games that I really like. You probably know what game that is that I think is an interesting way to gain ceiling on this slate with risk. We sacrifice floor, we sacrifice certainty, but we take on some really high ceiling on this slate in an effort to outmaneuver the field. But generally speaking, these low total games aren't going to have the potential to combine for 70 to 80 points. And that's why these are low total games, because Vegas is trying to get game totals that the results will end up on either side of them 50% of the time. So if we have an over under of 43, and think about what a 43 point total is, right? Like that's a 20, 21 to 22 game. That's a very low scoring NFL game. That's a 23 to 20 game. Well, Vegas would be expecting the game to finish below that mark 50% of the time. And a game that's going to finish below 43 total points 50% of the time is typically going to have a hard time combining for 70 points, right? Just the nature of two teams that would combine for 43 or fewer points 50% of the time, it would be difficult for that type of, of game to combine for 65, 70 points. And this is what we should be using Vegas lines for. Not saying, okay, this is the expectation in this game. We'll get to one of these higher total games in a little bit. 
uh, and and basically the same sort of discussion that that a high Vegas total is not telling us that this game is going to be a shootout. A low Vegas total is not telling us that this game is not going to have any possibility of putting up points. It's just telling us what sort of our median expectations for this game should be. And if we can get in there and then say, okay, well, on either side of this median expectation, there's a narrow range or a broad range, then we can get a better sense of how we can exploit the way that the field is using these over-unders. So a lot of times on these low total games, it's not necessarily going to be two teams that just can't score points. When you have two teams that are pretty evenly matched, enough random things can happen that it's tough to finish below 42 or 43 points 50% of the time. So we see that playing out in these low totals this week. Here's what I mean. The Jaguars and Titans have a low total, but the Titans are favored by nine points. The Seahawks and Texans have a low total, but the Seahawks are favored by eight and a half points points. The Saints and Jets have a low total. The Saints are favored by five and a half points. The Giants and Chargers have a low total. The Chargers are favored by 10 points. The Lions and Broncos have a low total. The Broncos are favored by 10 points. Now, there are two exceptions this week. There's the Falcons and Panthers, which is uh, Panthers are only favored by two and a half points in a game with an over-under of 41 and a half. And then Ravens-Browns, which has an over-under of 42 and a half, and the Browns are favored by two and a half points. Now, what's interesting is these closer spreads tend to be the types of games that can actually significantly outproduce these low totals. But what we typically find people moving toward is the low total games with big spreads because we look at those Vegas implied team totals and we say, okay, well, the Titans are implied for 26.25 points. That's the same as the Cowboys this week. The Seahawks are implied for 24 and a half points. The Saints for 24.25 points. The Chargers for 26 and a half. The Broncos for 26. But at this point, we need to understand the teams that we're talking about. So if we have a team like the Buccaneers favored by 10 points, well, we know that the Buccaneers are likely to keep their foot on the gas deep into the game. But what if a team like the Seahawks is favored by 10 points? What if a team like the Broncos is favored by 10 points? This over-under of, let's say, Lions-Broncos, this over-under of 42 if Vegas expected this game to play out closely more often than not, the over-under for this game would probably go up an extra half point, point, point and a half, two points even. But with the Broncos installed as 10-point favorites and with the Broncos' style of play, it becomes that much more difficult for this game to go over 42 points, which is where we get this 42-point total and the expectation that the game ends up on either side of that total 50% of the time. Because if the Broncos are winning in a blowout, if the Broncos are up 30-10, to 10, we're going to see them slowing things down more and more and more. Now, if the Broncos got to 30 points, you'd obviously be happy with that. But my point is that people tend to just look at these Vegas implied team totals and kind of say, okay, this team's at 26, this team's at 26. Well, everybody's on this team at 26, but everybody's overlooking this team at 26. But if a team has a 25, 26 point total in a low total game, the chances of that team 
just continuing to put up points throughout the game. The chances of that team just taking off and being the team that you had to have on the slate is so much lower than the two evenly matched teams where one team is, you know, a 26 point implied total and one team is at a 24 and a half point implied total because these had to have it scores, as we often talk about, typically come from games where a team scores five or more touchdowns. Now, there's a whole discussion here about what a slate offers compared to the typical slate, right? Like on this particular week with only one game carrying an over-under above 48.5, it's not likely that we're going to see many true had-to-have-it outputs. It's not likely that we're going to see many teams scoring five or more touchdowns. And so the team that scores four touchdowns, could end up being the most valuable team on the slate or the team that produces the most valuable DFS scores on the slate. But it's important that we make sure that we're not taking Vegas implied team totals and just considering them all to be created equal. Different game totals tell a different story about what these team totals actually mean. Now, again, there are exceptions here. A couple of clear and obvious exceptions this week are these two do-it-all quarterbacks, Taysom Hill and Cam Newton. Now, we could come up with stories of how either of these quarterbacks fail or how both of these quarterbacks fail this week. But most reasonable scenarios for these games has these players, these two quarterbacks, producing at at least a solid point per dollar level with both guys having upside to be one of the stronger point per dollar plays on the slate. That's in spite of the totals in these games. And it's because of the way that these two players are expected to be used. And probably even more importantly, because of the price tags that these players carry. If Taysom Hill were priced at 7,500 on DraftKings, it would be a very different story than when he's priced in the mid-5Ks. If Cam Newton were priced at 7,500 on DraftKings, it would be a very different story than when he's priced in the mid-5Ks. Which brings us to the higher total games on the slate. So those of you who have been playing DFS for a while might recall that around 2016, DraftKings started doing what I called dynamic pricing. This was particularly important in baseball, and I haven't played uh, MLB DFS since 2017, so they could still be doing this for baseball, and I don't know. But they started it in baseball, where an elite pitcher obviously lowers the projections and the expectations for the offense that elite elite pitcher is facing. So what DraftKings started doing in order to make decisions more challenging for DFS players and therefore create a greater edge for sharp DFS players who could kind of navigate through all of this is they started lowering pricing on an entire team's lineup against an elite pitcher. They started raising pricing on an entire team's lineup against a bad pitcher. So it wasn't like they made Mike Trout the 30th highest priced player because he was facing an elite pitcher, but they lowered his price enough that you had an interesting decision point to say, man, this is a tough matchup. But it's also Mike Trout, who, let's say, he's typically priced at 5,500, and today he's priced at 4,900 or 4,700. 
do I want to pull the trigger here? Here's this lineup full of guys who are typically priced at 3,200, 3,500, but they're playing this awful pitcher, but they're also now all priced up at 38, 3,900. So DraftKings started doing that again. Uh, I think it was 2016 in MLB. And then they carried that over to NFL. And that was very much part of what DraftKings did for at least a couple years. And then kind of gradually, they eased off of the dynamic pricing until now we can look at a player's pricing movement and it really doesn't correlate at all to the matchup that they have. So let's talk about these high total games. This is very interesting to me this particular week. We've talked all season and and let me actually let me step back and say this. This is my working through the slate. This is my, well, even say my opinion on things. So I see it myself. I'll have thoughts on a game and then I'll read Mike's write-up for that game or I'll read Hilo's write-up for that game and I'll sort of change my thoughts because it's like, oh, well, Mike said this. Hilo said this. Mike found this stat. Um, Mike's seeing things this way. And then I have to check myself and say, okay, let me balance that into what I'm seeing. Let me balance that into the way that I'm the, the way that I was already thinking about this matchup. So I say that to say, don't take my thoughts and and then just say, okay, well, JM said this, so I guess I'll go this direction. But instead, just take all of this as something extra to think about, another layer in your thinking, and basically say, look, do I think this week is unpredictable? compared to a typical DFS week? If the answer is yes, step two, do I think that that chalk will still form because chalk always forms? Therefore, the field would be overrating the chalk this week. And then step three, you can then say, well, if those two things are true, then the sharpest thing for me to do is to just bet on different things than the field is betting on this week. Let the chips fall where they may from there. And maybe this is a week in which the things I'm betting on didn't hit or the things the field is betting on did hit. And that's okay. But I'm setting myself up for what would be most profitable if we played out this slate a hundred times. So I say all that because I'm about to dump on this Bills-Bucks game a little bit. And maybe you are high on this game. So take this as just another angle of thought, not as something that trumps everything that you've been seeing or thinking to this point in the week. But we've been saying all season that the Buccaneers are going to pass deep into games, regardless of matchup, regardless of score. The Buccaneers' identity is built around the pass. The Buccaneers treat every rep in every game like an opportunity to get better so that by the time they hit the playoffs, by the time they hit the Super Bowl is their goal, they will be playing at the highest possible level that their talent will allow at that point in the season because they've spent every opportunity trying to get better. Not killing off a quarter of the game just to wrap things up and get back home, but continuing to call plays, run plays, try to improve throughout games. Okay, so we've been saying that all season. We've been seeing that play out. And now the Bucks are facing the number one pass defense in football. Now, I understand that the Bills are missing Tredavious White, but this is still a really good pass defense. So they lose Tredavious White. What do we say? They're no longer the number one pass defense. Maybe they're number four, number five, number six, number seven. It's still a difficult passing matchup. 
DraftKings no longer has dynamic pricing. So Rob Gronkowski, Leonard Fournette, it's a difficult matchup on the ground as well, not as difficult uh, as it as it appeared earlier in the season, given what Jonathan Taylor and the Patriots running backs have done to the Bills lately. But again, Starla Tulele is back. Tremaine Edmonds is back. They were back for the Patriots game, but I would put up the Patriots rushing attack against the Bucks rushing attack and call it a better rushing attack. I think that we would all be comfortable doing that. And obviously Leonard Fournette's price has to be considered as well. So Leonard Fournette's price has not been adjusted for the matchup. Rob Gronkowski's price has not been adjusted for the matchup. Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, their prices have not been adjusted for the matchup. And yet their ownership probably won't be heavily adjusted for the matchup either. Instead, people look at this as the highest total game on the slate and see shootout potential, two teams that like to pass the ball. But what are the chances of the... Do you see this game? I'll put it like this. Okay, Brady has played six games in his career against Sean McDermott's Bills. It was 2017, 2018, 2019 with the Patriots. Those were not all bad Patriots teams. The 2019 team was not a great team. But the 2017 and 2018 teams were very strong teams. Six games against the Sean McDermott Bills, Brady had four total touchdowns, five total picks, and averaged 225 passing yards a game. In the rest of his games across those two seasons, these numbers are off the top of my head right now, uh, but I think I saw them right. Uh, Across the rest of his games across those three seasons, he averaged, I believe it was 1.93 touchdowns per game, basically half an interception per game, and 270, I think it was 277 passing yards per game. So all this to say, if, if Bucks offensive ownership is anywhere close to where it typically is, that is the field saying that they expect the Bucs to produce at the same level in this extremely difficult matchup that they produce in in challenging matchups. I mean, in softer matchups, sorry. So in order for that to happen, it would almost be absolutely required I mean, unless you just, you know, throw a bunch of darts and you end up hitting a bullseye with your eyes closed, right? Like, hey, I I bet on Mike Evans and he ended up having a three touchdown game, but everybody else, like the Bucs still scored 28, you know, everybody else in his offense significantly underperformed against expectations. In, in other words, the offense as a whole didn't do more than normal, but the production just ended up being concentrated on one player. Well, if you're going to make that guess on the Bucks, you might as well make that guess somewhere else as well. So the only way that it actually makes sense to play Bucks players is if the, this is my opinion, okay? But the only way that it makes sense to play Bucks players is if you're betting on this game environment, staying close, being high scoring, and sort of back and forth throughout. So in other words, yes, the over-under is 53 and a half. One team's implied for about 28 points. One team's implied for about 25 points. But I'm betting on this being like a 38 to 35 game. In order for that to happen, the Bills would have to obviously have a big game against a Buccaneers team that does everything they can to force short area throws. So let's take Stefan Diggs, who has produced one game this season that would be useful at his price tag and is now taking on a Buccaneers 
defense that does everything they can to force short throws. So how likely is it that Stefan Diggs and Emmanuel Sanders have big downfield games against the Bucks and stimulate this sort of back and forth affair that leads to players from both sides of this game being had to have it players at their high price tags. Now, to be clear, this is a weird week, right? There are only seven game. There are only four games with totals above 44 points. So maybe this game produces below the field's expectations. Maybe this is a 28 to 24 game, something in that range. And all of these guys kind of underperform against their price. But maybe this is a week in which you only need 165, 170, 175 points to win a tournament because all the other games disappointed as well. And so then these guys end up being valuable for that reason. But if we played out this slate 100 times, what I want to bet on is not, okay, maybe these popular plays will work out because the whole slate bombs. Instead, I would want to say, if I think the whole slate bombs, if I think that's the best way for this to be the optimal way to build, well, then let me try to get the one game that doesn't bomb. That's how I want to approach a week like this. If the Chiefs are going to go under-owned relative to how they're typically owned, we don't know yet if that will be the case. We'll have to wait until late Saturday night, early Sunday morning for ownership projections to really shake shake out. But if the Chiefs are going to be lower owned than they're typically owned, there's a place where you could say, look, these guys can actually blow past their salary multipliers. If Lamar Jackson is under 3% owned, which is currently looking like we're trending toward that, toward this Ravens-Browns game going totally overlooked. And why not, right? Over under 42 and a half days implied team totals of 20 and 22.5. If we're trending toward this game going overlooked, well, think about what we talked about in the NFL Edge this week and what we talked about in the player grid this week about what these teams have done in recent matchups between one another. Baker Mayfield's three of his four highest pass attempt games of the last two seasons have come in his three games against the Ravens. Each time he has played the Ravens, he has produced one of his four highest pass attempt games of the last two years. You can't run on the Ravens, you can pass on the Ravens, and that is becoming more and more true each week with each new injury to the Ravens' defense. Would the Browns prefer to run the ball? Of course. But are the Browns going to shift over and attack through the air a little bit more? Almost certainly. Lamar Jackson threw four picks against the Browns the last time they played. Lamar Jackson has been up and down this season. Lamar Jackson was also up and down last season. And he put up 27 and a half and 37, what, like 37 and a half DraftKings points in his two games against the Browns. Two of his four best games of the season, including his best game of the season. So let's say that this game two weeks ago didn't happen. And let's say that one of the games from last year had happened in week six or seven of this year. Well, then people would be saying, man, this game is probably going to blow up and it's a great spot to play Lamar Jackson. He put up 37 points the last time these teams played eight weeks ago and all these players had all this production. But instead, people are just looking at what happened a couple weeks ago. People are saying, oh, well, this team's been up and down. The Browns have been playing poorly. And so they're underrating the chances of this game blowing up. So I might end up building around this Ravens-Browns game. And it might end up being an 18 to 21 
game. And my roster is dead, you know, before this game is over. But I also might build around this game and it might end up being a game in which the Ravens score five touchdowns and we might have no other game on the slate where any team scores more than four touchdowns. And we might only have a couple games where a team scores four touchdowns. The Buccaneers are the only team with a Vegas implied team total of four touchdowns. And it wouldn't be that shocking if they didn't get there. If they ended up with, say, 27 points, say three touchdowns and a couple field goals. So what happens in that type of scenario? What happens in a scenario where you are building around the only team that scores five touchdowns and no other team, again, take the shape of this slate, no other team scores more than three touchdowns? Well, you have so much leeway on that roster for mistakes from there. You can have a player who totally bombs on that roster and still be in clear contention for first place. So on a week like this, what I'm looking for is not the places to be a little bit different, but the places where I can be a lot different, the places where I can totally separate from the field. So maybe for you, that's Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett. I've noticed that DK Metcalf, so far DK Metcalf's ownership projections are coming in above Tyler Lockett's. So that's one way to play that one. Maybe you think Julio Jones unexpectedly sees eight to 10 targets in this game against the Jags. Maybe the Titans want to get him going. Julio Jones is the type of guy who can put up, theoretically, 35-plus DraftKings points. That's the type of play that can separate you from everybody else. Let's take the Raiders and Chiefs. Gus Bradley, the Raiders defensive coordinator, uh, as we know, comes from the Seattle coaching tree, prefers a cover three defense. And this cover two defense that has given the Chiefs so many fits this season. Well, the Raiders are the only team in the last Chiefs' last six games that didn't adjust to that and that staunchly played their cover three and got absolutely torched by the Chiefs. So what if the Raiders try to go cover three again, or what if they switch to a lot more cover two looks, but they have so little practice with it that their communication is off and the Chiefs are still able to break off some huge plays, right? Like the Chiefs are still passing deep. They just haven't been successful with their deep passing. So what if they're successful again in this spot and they end up putting up you know a game where Mahomes puts up 35 and Hill puts up 40 to 45 maybe Kelsey puts up 26 nobody's on these guys to the level that they typically are and you're just moving way past the field I, I keep thinking that it must be a typo that all of the a mistake that all of the ownership projections I've been looking at again it's it's Friday these will shake out more as we get closer to Sunday morning, but all of the ownership projections I've been seeing so far have Justin Herbert as one of the top projected owned quarterbacks on the slate against a good Giants pass defense, likely missing Keenan Allen. And why is that? Is it because the Chargers have an over-under of 26 and a half and Herbert has put up some big games? Well, again, what does this 26 and a half total mean against a Giants team that it's really hard to see keeping pace with the Chargers? Justin Herbert costs over 7K on DraftKings. So he needs, what, 33, 34, 35, 38 points to really be a separator on this slate? What are the chances of him getting that compared to the chances of Lamar Jackson getting that? And then think about the fact that Lamar Jackson is probably going to be about one-fourth the ownership of Justin Herbert, at least according to what we're seeing currently. But even if he's one-third, even if he's one-half, 
the ownership of Justin Herbert. Let's throw out these 28-point scores, the 4X scores. Let's talk about separator scores. Is Justin Herbert against the Giants going to post a separator score two times as often as Lamar Jackson, three times as often as Lamar Jackson? That's what ownership is saying on a week like this. 49ers and Bengals. The 49ers have scored 30 plus in four of their last six games. The Bengals have allowed 30 plus in three of their last five games, including 40 plus in two of their last five games. These are both good defenses when we sort of break down the numbers, but when we also zoom out and say, hey, what could happen in this game? Could this game get out of hand to such an extent that it just blows away the other games on the slate? So against the backdrop of this Bills-Bucks game, it becomes a very interesting week because it would be hard for Bills and Bucks to totally fail. It would be hard for this to be like a 17 to 24 game. It could certainly happen. There have been some blueprints put out there this season of how to slow down Josh Allen and this Bills offense. And we know that Sean McDermott, if there's any coach who's going to know how to kind of slow down Tom Brady, and, and, and again, Tom Brady's not concerned with statistics. That's something we should keep in mind. I'll never forget the game when Tom Brady was one touchdown away from tying or setting the record for most consecutive games with a touchdown pass. It was like 48 games or 49 games or something like that. And he was one game away from tying or setting the record. And it was deep in the fourth quarter and Brady didn't have a touchdown pass yet. And the Patriots got down to the one or two yard line, three yard line, something like that. And they had a lead. I think it was just like a four point lead. So they're trying to make it a two score game. Pass play was called. Brady comes up to the line, checks the look, checks over to a run play. The Patriots run in the touchdown. Brady doesn't get the record. The Patriots score the touchdown. Brady doesn't care. Brady's just interested in winning games. Sean McDermott is interested in winning games as well. And what he doesn't want to happen is for him to get beat downfield. So he's going to try to force the Bucs to march the field. The Bucs are going to try to force the Bills to march the field. And so while it would be difficult for this game to totally disappoint, it would also be difficult for this game to turn into a 35 to 41 game, a 42 to 47 game. And I mentioned specifically that that seemingly random number of 42 to 47 because the Browns had a 42 to 47 game against the Chargers earlier this year. And the Browns had a 42 to 47 game against the Ravens last year. So, again, what I'm looking at here is basically bucks and bills, non-dynamic pricing, a game that probably finishes around the over-under. So if I can find either a game with cheaper players who can match that type of scoring or a game with similarly priced players, but where the game can't go way above that type of scoring, that's what I want to be looking to do this week. Now, that's a much longer discussion than I expected or anticipated having around the slate as a whole. But this is not a week where I feel that my edge is in out-predicting the field. We talked about this two weeks ago, the week after the main slate after Thanksgiving, where I said, look, this is not a week where the edge is out-predicting the field. The edge here is just out-maneuvering the field, figuring out what they're doing. They lay their cards on the table, and then you can say, okay, cool. 
here's what would make me the most money if we played out this slate a hundred times. Last week, as we talked about, was very much a week in which it made the most sense to try to out-predict the field. This week is back to the other extreme, and it's been interesting because we've had extremes lately. So this is the type of stuff, obviously, that we typically talk about in Inner Circle, in the Saturday Strategy Podcast with Xanabir and Hilo, breaking down the strategy for that week's slate, in the Tuesday session, kind of talking through macro DFS theory, micro DFS theory, and not something that we typically have in the Angles podcast. But this week, this is sort of how we should be talking about this slate is through this specific lens. Before we get to the bottom-up build, if you are in Inner Circle, having mentioned that, uh, we have something sort of cool that we've set up for you. You can find a link to it and information on it at the bottom of the player grid. If you're in Inner Circle, you'll see it. If you're not in Inner Circle, it will be invisible to you. But at the bottom of the player grid, below where I have my condensed player pool. You will find it. It's also, you got an email the other day um, from me that has this laid out. So if you missed that email, just check out the player grid um, and yeah, go to the bottom of it. I'll tell you, if you read the email and have not kept up with this, there are 140 spots left. You know what that means. Other people don't, but uh, pretty cool. The reaction that we've had so far to that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can find that at the bottom of the player grid. Okay, the bottom-up build. Obviously, we'll run through this a little bit more quickly than we sometimes do this week because we spent most of our time talking about the slate as a whole. And also because, again, the edge on this slate is not in trying to outpredict the field, but is instead in finding ways to outmaneuver the field based on what this slate offers and based on the mistakes that we can anticipate the field making. Okay, bottom-up build, and let's start with three players from one game. Donovan Peoples-Jones, Marquise Brown, and Mark Andrews. So if Baker Mayfield throws the ball 37 or more times, which he has in each of his last three games against the Ravens, Donovan Peoples-Jones has a good shot at seeing five to seven targets, including several downfield shots against a Ravens defense that has given up more pass plays of 20 plus yards than any team in the NFL. Donovan Peoples-Jones is 3,900 and a game in which Donovan Peoples-Jones is Hitting is a game in which the Ravens are then being forced to be more aggressive, or it's a game in which the Ravens have already been hitting, thus forcing the Browns to be more aggressive. Marquise Brown, Mark Andrews. These two players combined need to put up around like 48 to 50 points for you to feel really good about the production that you're getting from them. They have a lot of games this season with like 30 to 35 points, a really solid number of games this year with like 40, 41, 42 combined points. But most of the time, they're finishing a little bit below what you would want from these two players combined. However, they also have a game this year with 80 combined points. In fact, it was 81.2 points. It was their game against the Colts earlier this year where they put up 31 points. 
Lamar Jackson had 45.88 points in that game, which means that these three players combined for about 127 points. That is the type of ceiling that these three players have as a combo. So as we talked about already, we could see it's not unreasonable to expect that we could see a week in which 170, 175, 180 points is what is required to win most tournaments. So if we take the other 10 games on the slate and we say that they'll sort of play out in such a way, or or not they will, but if they end up playing out in such a way, which is very much in the realm of reasonable possibilities, that the other 10 games end up playing out in such a way that 175, 180 points is what you need to win a tournament. Maybe if you get up to the Millie Maker, it's like 190. Maybe in higher dollar single entry, it's like 165. But sort of this range of scoring, if that ends up being required or, or, or the ceiling of production from these other 10 games for a first place finish, and then this one game that people are overlooking ends up going off in such a way that you're getting... 150 points from Lamar Jackson plus Donovan Peoples-Jones plus Marquise Brown plus Mark Andrews. What does that do for your roster? You've used four spots. You haven't spent a ton of salary. Lamar Jackson's expensive, but not prohibitively expensive. Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews are affordable. Donovan Peoples-Jones is cheap. You've used four spots. You have five spots left on your roster and you've got 150 points. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but I am saying that if we played out this slate 100 times, that would happen sometimes on this slate, and it would happen more often than ownership will predict it happening. If Lamar Jackson is 25 or 3% owned, and a lot of people try to play Lamar Jackson naked, and then they're probably not, if they, if they stack, they're probably not double stacking. And if they double stack, they're probably not bringing it back with Donovan Peoples-Jones, in spite of the fact that this is the best way to tell that story. Well, you're going to have under 1% ownership on this stack. Probably out of every, you'll, like one out of every 200 rosters would have this stack. And we know from the fact that Lamar Jackson hasn't played 200 games in his career, we know that big blow-up games from this offense are going to happen more than once every 200 games. And what's great about this particular slate is you probably don't even need, you almost certainly don't even need these guys to combine for 150 points. If if this four-player block combined for 100 points, you're probably way ahead of the field. So, This bottom-up build starts with Marquise Brown, with Mark Andrews, with Donovan Peoples-Jones. I was not able to fit in Lamar Jackson on this roster without making sacrifices elsewhere that were more significant than it was worth making. So what this bottom-up build, and again, this is a bottom-up build, so we have six over 6K in salary left over. But what this bottom-up build basically tells a story of is this slate as a whole sort of disappoints. Donovan Peoples-Jones, Marquise Brown, Mark Andrews combined for 65 to 70, maybe even 75 points, which would put Lamar Jackson in sort of like a 22 to 25, maybe 27 point game. A really strong game, a game you'd be happy with if you rostered him, but a game in which you didn't have to roster him. 
So I brought up the 80 combined points, the 81.2 combined points that Hollywood and Mark Andrews had in that game against the Colts earlier this year. But to be clear, if you were playing them on a roster together and hoping for that type of game, you would want Lamar Jackson on that roster as well. Lamar put up 45.88 points in that game himself. But since we're looking at a bottom-up build and since we are working with a slate where it's definitely reasonable to believe that we could see a lower first-place score than the typical week. With that in mind, this actually makes a decent amount of sense, especially on a bottom-up build, to have Marquise, uh, Marquise Brown, Mark Andrews, and no Lamar Jackson because of salary constraints. That leaves us going to the cheaper quarterbacks, and we put Taysom Hill on this roster. Uh, I break down Taysom Hill and Cam Newton in the player grid, so I won't spend a ton of time here, but just a, a really high floor and obviously a high ceiling for his price tag. And, and Taysom Hill has five starts, and he hasn't disappointed yet. His worst game was 18.52 points. Uh, his second worst was 20.94, and his third worst game, his middle game of the five, was 24.58 points. Taysom Hill has also not yet accounted for three touchdowns in one of his starts. So he has several two passing touchdown games, uh, I believe one, maybe two, two rushing touchdown games. But all of his starts so far, he's accounted for two touchdowns, no games yet where he's accounted for three. So we certainly have additional upside from there. Taysom Hill is on this roster. Now, I discussed this in the player grid, but I want to touch on it real quickly. Taysom Hill plus Austin Eckler is a really nice pairing. If you sort of run through the numbers, which I do in the player grid, it's going to be hard for Taysom Hill and Alvin Kamara to hit together in such a way that their combined salary gets you to 4x production, and especially in such a way that they blow past that 4x mark. So when we look at things through a lens of roster construction, that's worth keeping in mind. But when we also look at things through a lens of what that means, that means that it would be hard for these two players to combine for 55 plus points, which means that if Taysom Hill is getting you the 27 plus points that you'd love to get from him, or excuse me, let, let me step back. Uh, they combined salary, they need to get you more like 54 points. So if Taysom Hill is getting you 27 points and it's going to be really hard for these two to combine for 54 points, well, then you know they're probably combining for 47, 48, something like that. So basically, Taysom Hill having a big game likely means Kamara is having a solid game, but not a had-to-have-it game. 18 points, 20 points, 22 points, 26 points, something like that. So Taysom Hill plus Austin Eckler not only means that your Taysom Hill roster is, if it hits, it's taking away points from Alvin Kamara rosters, but also you recognize that most Alvin Kamara rosters had an either-or decision to make between Austin Eckler and Alvin Kamara at a similar price point and you know, likely went with or did go with Alvin Kamara in this scenario. And so because of that, they likely don't have Austin Eckler on that roster. So Austin Eckler, Austin Eckler's production is in no way tied to or related to the production of the Saints. But because of that decision point that our competition has, not only are we taking away points from Alvin Kamara rosters with a Taysom Hill big game, but also we're playing the other high-priced running back that 
Camaro rosters were not able to play. And so if if Camara has a 24-point game and Eckler has a 36-point game, we get that additional gap on those Camara builds. So Taysom Hill plus Austin Eckler is a really interesting way to build this. That is not the way that I've built this one because we have a bottom-up build where we're trying to keep things under a 44K salary cap. So I went with, you'll see, we have to start making some, some tight decisions here. Uh, I went with a few things to free up salary here. One, I have Keelan Cole on this roster. The Jets hate Denzel Mims. I don't know why, you don't know why, but it's been going on since training camp. Uh, He was running as the sixth, seventh receiver in training camp. He's been inactive throughout the season. Even when we've had all these injuries, he's rarely getting time on the field, rarely getting targets. Keelan Cole has been playing above Denzel Mims and is not somebody that most people are going to think of here. Elijah Moore is banged up. Corey Davis is out. What are our expectations for Keelan Cole? Well, he probably gets like six, eight, nine DraftKings points. But Keelan Cole does have big play upside and he does have big production upside. So at 3,100, opposite Taysom Hill, he makes a lot of sense on a bottom-up build in particular where we're trying to find ways to free up salary. So I probably won't be going all the way down to the low 3Ks on my main build slash main builds this week. But for a bottom-up build, trying to free up salary, Keelan Cole is actually very interesting. And if I were playing MME or even just large field play, I would certainly take some shots on some of these cheaper guys, whether it's Laquan Treadwell or... Juwan Jennings or Keelan Cole. Uh, I was going to say Josh Reynolds, although he's gotten a little bit more expensive. So some of these super cheap guys who legitimately could get you 20 plus points because in large field play, getting that, you know, in large field play, you have to be willing to just take that zero or take that super disappointing low cost score on the chances that it can actually get you 20 to 25 points. And now you have a lot of extra salary to work with and this really big score from this this cheap guy that you rostered. So if I were playing large field play, Keelan Cole would be much more in the mix for me. I probably will not have him given what I will be playing this week. Uh, But Keelan Cole is one of the ways that I'm saving salary. Jeff Wilson is the next way that I'm saving salary. Jeff Wilson's 4,400. This is obviously assuming that Eli Mitchell is out no Trey Sermon, in this case, no Eli Mitchell, no Raheem Mostert. We're down to the end of the line for San Francisco running backs. And from what the San Francisco beat writers put out there, it seems that Jeff Wilson is much more trusted with this coaching staff than Jermichael Hasty. So Hasty will get some pass game work. Hasty will spell Jeff Wilson. But Jeff Wilson getting 17 touches or 17 carries, even as many as 20, 21, 22 carries and one or two catches is not unreasonable especially if Eli Mitchell is out and Debo Samuel is out. So Jeff Wilson at only 4,400, if we think of him in terms of running back, then we say, oh, well, you know, we can get running backs with a better pass catching role and better touchdown equity and all that. But if we just think in terms of the salary that we're spending, 4,400 goes a long way here compared to what it goes in other places on this slate. Josh Reynolds is 4,100. Who has a, if we played out this slate 100 times, who's getting you more points? Jeff Wilson, if he sees 20 touches, or Josh Reynolds, if he sees four or five or six or seven targets from Jared Goff at mile high against the Broncos. So 
Just from a pure salary spent standpoint, Jeff Wilson is interesting to me this week. He's in the mix for me on my main build. I would prefer to not play him, but running back is thin enough outside of Kamara and Eckler that I wouldn't hate it if I had to go down to him and if that freed up salary for other spots. So as of right now, we have Taysom Hill and Keelan Cole in the same game. We have Donovan Peoples-Jones, Marquise Brown, Mark Andrews in the same game. We have Jeff Jeff Wilson helping us to save a little bit of salary. And all of this saving of salary was because Mike Williams is a priority for me on this bottom-up build. When we're talking about bottom-up build and most underpriced plays on the slate, best value plays on the slate, as we've talked about for years, best value doesn't just mean cheapest guy. Best value also means Who's the most underpriced for their role, for their expectation? So Brandon Ayuk is on this list. George Kittle is on this list. But we have Mark Andrews at tight end, given the way that we're building this roster. We have Jeff Wilson on this roster instead of Brandon Ayuk. We have no Austin Eckler on this roster. And we would assume that even, even if we were in a contest where everybody had a 44K salary cap, we would assume that there would still be a decent number of people who would prioritize Austin Eckler and make sure that they were getting up to him. So Mike Williams takes away points from those Austin Eckler rosters if he ends up hitting. Mike Williams should see anywhere from seven, I'll say seven, as his kind of low end because... Crazy things can happen with Mike Williams. Crazy things can happen with the Chargers. And maybe Keenan Allen's out. He vacates 10-plus targets, and Mike Williams still only sees like seven looks. But seven looks would seem to be the very low end of the target range for Mike Williams. And he could legitimately see as many as 13, 14 targets. That wouldn't be a crazy outcome. Now, that's a high-end outcome, but that wouldn't be considered an outlier range of usage for Mike Williams this week. So Mike Williams at only 6K is very intriguing to me this week with Keenan Allen out. Mike Williams was a priority on this roster, which I say he was a priority on this roster because I don't love the second running back that I have. But the decision points that I was making were based on getting Mike Williams on this build. So what I mean by that is I could have spent an extra 1500 at running back and gotten up to Alvin Kamara. I could have gone from Taysom Hill down to Cam Newton, and then I would have had not had Kamara and, and Taysom Hill on a roster together, but I would have had uh, Cam gotten up to Alvin Kamara, and I would have needed to save 1300 somewhere else on this roster. So then I could have gone from Mike Williams down to a wide receiver at, you know, obviously I'm already building around this Browns and Ravens game, so I'm not changing anything there. Jeff Wilson's as cheap as we can get at running back. Keelan Cole's as cheap as we can get at wide receiver. I've got the Texans defense on here. I, I won't spend time on that because I break that down in the player grid, but uh, Texans defense is as cheap as I can get at defense. And so the only place where I really have flexibility if I want to get up to one of these high tier running backs is at this wide receiver spot, this flex spot. So I could go from Mike Williams down to a 4,700 wide receiver and drop down to Cam and move up to Alvin Kamara. Or I could go even cheaper at wide receiver down to Josh Reynolds or one of these guys and get up as high as Austin Eckler on this roster, right? Because then I'm saying, if I don't have Mike Williams, I definitely want Austin Eckler. I definitely want to bet on this 
Chargers, condensed Chargers attack this week on this roster. Because what we're looking for at this point in the season is who's actually underpriced. There aren't typically that many guys who are underpriced at this point in the season. So when we have a situation like Debo Samuel out or a situation like Keenan Allen out, we want to take advantage of that if we can't. So if I don't have Mike Williams on this roster, I probably want to get all the way up to Austin Eckler. The way to do that would be Mike Williams down to Josh Reynolds and this second running back up to Austin Eckler. But what I ended up doing was leaving Mike Williams in and biting the bullet on Josh Jacobs. Now, it seems might seem funny to spend so much time talking down this pick when it's such an obvious sharp play. Like on paper, Josh Jacobs is just a super sharp play. If Jalen Richard is out this week, Kenyon Drake is definitely out this week. Well, Josh Jacobs is going to be on the field 80 plus percent of the snaps, maybe as much as 85 or 90 percent of the snaps. He's probably going to see five or six catches this week, and he's going to get anywhere from 13 to 20 carries, depending on how game flow shakes out and what the Raiders end up doing in this spot. But Josh Jacobs catching six passes is not the same as Austin Eckler catching six passes. If Austin Eckler catches six passes, he's almost certainly getting 60 yards. And every single one of those catches is a new opportunity for him to break off a 60 or 70 yarder. If Josh Jacobs catches six passes, he's probably getting 30 to 40 yards, and the chances of him taking a, a, one of these for a huge gain is very low. It's just not his strength. The, the finding space in the, in the soft spot of the zone or the beating man coverage and then the catch and turn up field and maneuvering open space, it's just not where Josh Jacobs thrives. So his six catches is very different from Austin Eckler's six catches. So because of that, and because of the fact that Josh Jacobs' chalk has so many ways that it could go wrong, I don't love the play myself, but he's also 6,200 as a running back in an offense that typically puts up points and uh, against the Chiefs' defense where they're going to be having to try to put up points. And you put it all together, and uh, it's a case of overthinking things to try too hard to get off of this, especially on this bottom-up build. So Josh Jacobs goes on the bottom-up build. Josh Jacobs may very well end up going on my main roster this week. It depends on what shakes out with Antonio Gibson slash JD McKissick news and what shakes out elsewhere on the slate and how things end up coming together for me. But Josh Jacobs is very much on my radar, deep on my radar, and will more likely than not end up on my main team this week. So that gives us a final bottom-up build of Taysom Hill at quarterback, Keelan Cole as our cheap wide receiver in that same game, Josh Jacobs and Jeff Wilson at running back, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Marquise Brown, and Mark Andrews from that Browns-Ravens game and Mike Williams in the flex with the Texans defense rounding things out. We spend 43.8K in salary. We have 6.2K in salary left over. With that, we are going to call it a week. Make sure that you are not trying to out-predict the field this week, but instead, even if, even if you feel like you have a better read on some of these games in the field, even if you feel like you're in position to out predict the field this week. This is still a week where you want to find at least one or two places where your focus is not just on out predicting, but also out maneuvering. And we could say, well, that's the case every week. But in my opinion, it's not always the case. Every slate's a little bit different. And the extent to which 
We want to out-predict the field versus out-maneuver the field is different every single week. So every week, there's going to be a blend of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but different weeks swing differently. So again, last week, there was very little out-maneuvering that I felt was optimal and a lot of out-predicting. This week, there is very little out-predicting that I feel is optimal and a lot of out-maneuvering. So look for ways to out-maneuver the field. Look for those games that can blow up much bigger than the field is expecting or those players who can blow up much bigger than the field is expecting. Recognize that if this slate shakes out the way that it's likeliest to shake out, doesn't mean that will, but the way that it's likeliest to shake out, we'll have lower first place scores than we would usually see, which means that if you can find that one game that sort of blows past everything or that one player who sort of blows past everything, you're in that much better shape this week compared to other weeks. With that, we will call it a day. I will see you on the site throughout the weekend. I will see you in your inbox Sunday morning, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards Sunday night.